Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i denne uge haft den fornøjelse og det privilegium at tale med David Runciman. Mange kender ham som vært på den meget lyttede podcast Talking Politics. Andre kender ham som forfatter til meget vigtige bøger, blandt andet om hvordan demokratiet ender, om hyggeleri som dyd og om politik generelt. Så er der også nogen, der kender ham som professor i politisk teori ved Cambridge University. David Runciman har den sjældne evne, at han kan se det helt store idehistoriske perspektiv i det helt konkrete, der foregår i vores samtid. Og det er det, der gør hans nye bog, Confronting Leviathan, mesterlig. Han ser på klimaforandringerne og siger, at der er faktisk ikke nogen politik, der virker. Vi bliver nødt til at opfinde en politik, og vi har ikke særlig lang tid til det. Det er et helt aktuelt og konkret drama, som vi kun kender alt for godt. Men samtidig så går David Runciman tilbage til Thomas Hobbes, til Hannah Arendt, til Alexis de Tocqueville, til Mary Wollstonecraft og siger, når vi har været i tilsvarende situationer, som har krævet fælles handling, hvordan er det så blevet løst? Hvad er de store tanker? Hvad er de store idéer? Og den måde at kunne koble de store idéer med de konkrete dramaer i vores samtid, den gør os fri til at tænke over, hvad vi skal gøre og hvordan vi kan gøre det. Den gør os mindre bange for verden, og den gør os mere inspireret. Den giver os lyst til at deltage, den giver os lyst til at lytte. Ja, den giver os faktisk lyst til at tale om politik. Her følger min samtale med David Runciman. You write that we are still constantly trying to work out where we are. And that seems to me to be the new normal. I thought this state of exception ended with the re-election of Biden, but we realized that it definitely didn't. And I often myself have the sensation that the modern theories of state government and politics are inadequate yeah. in this situation that we're in. But you you return to Hobbes here. Why do you do that? Yeah, so it's partly that this, this book and these, the podcast that uh, the book's based on, it, it started during the first lockdown, which seems like a long time ago now, uh, 18 months ago. And it was thinking about politics and you know, the, the feeling that Uh, under COVID conditions, some some deeper thing was being revealed that behind the familiar routines of politics, democratic politics, there was something more raw uh, to do with you know the power of governments and of states to take these life and death decisions for us. And Hobbes is a philosopher of that. So part of the reason for going back to the 17th century is to get kind of beneath and behind what we for a long time, for most of my lifetime, I think we took for granted just is politics, the, the democratic norms of politics but also like you said at the beginning i had that sense too i think everyone has that even that you know, even this idea of the state the organizing institution of modern political life even that feels fragile now because you can go back to 1651 and Hobbes, it's a long time ago but it's still contingent you know there's still the whole of human history behind that and there's still the whole of human history ahead of us And that 300, 350-year period dominated comes to be dominated by this form of politics. It's not eternal. And so having a sense of where it comes from is a way of thinking about how it might possibly not be here forever. And I guess even in the last 18 months, I've felt that more strongly. Um, I think we all have this feeling there's something uncanny about politics at the moment, that the things that we take for granted, they feel a little shakier. Um, and I think Hobbes is a good way to get a feel for that. There's something that you write in in the book that you that you stress this thing that we're equally vulnerable. Mm. And I 
when I reread uh, Hobbes, I, I was thinking that actually this seemed very current uh, because I had I have the feeling these days that we can't take our political order for granted. And you know, when I was young, everything that was subversive, everything that was angry, everything that was anti-establishment was something that was very good. You know, you liked it. You could you could bang against the system because you know it wouldn't collapse. Now I have the sensation that it actually could collapse, and what comes after is not like a new socialist society, but some something that resembles dark ages and very powerful men and a nature that we that we cannot control. So I think there's this very strong point about we're equally vulnerable that you rediscover in Hobbes. Yeah, so that's his starting point in a way. So Hobbes is famous now for not actually for his theory of the state, but for his theory of what life is like without a state, the state of nature, uh, incredibly bleak vision of what human beings would have to suffer if they didn't have the organization of, of government to keep them safe, essentially. And you know, though the political theory looks very unequal because it gives this power to the state to take life and death decisions, behind it is this idea of equality, equal vulnerability, that in the absence of a political order, no human being is safe. And money won't keep you safe. Uh, privilege won't keep you safe. In the end, that we're equally vulnerable. So Hobbes gives us this really existential choice between having a politics, really for Hobbes, any politics will do. I'm not sure we feel that now, but any politics and the alternative. And we have just at the sort of fringes of our imagination, I think now, and this, this is true more in the last few years and certainly I would think you know, when I was a student say in the 1990s this sense that 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 really bleak possibility is out there it's sort of stalking our imaginations and then the other thing you get from Hobbes the reason I like reading him is you know he's a very modern thinker it's very mechanical very rational um, it's an idea of politics where he thinks if we really can think straight get rid of superstition we can see the workings of the state and agree that this is how it has to be and at the same time he's almost a mystical writer you know his, his writing is full of wild images and metaphors and there's something deeply mysterious about it that you you use mechanical modern science to build this thing modern politics but it's got something mysterious at its heart and I still feel that now. I think we, you know, in the age of AI and machine technology and all the rest of it, we're living this sort of double life where on the one hand, life is becoming more and more mechanical in a sort of Hobbesian way. And at the same time, it's becoming more mysterious. You know, we're building these machines and we don't really understand them. And you go back to Hobbes and you see a version of that, building this mechanical state, not completely clear that anyone actually understands its power. And that resembles something that, that uh, Quentin Skinner said last week, that the, he had the sensation that over the last decades that we had increasing liberty understood in a liberal way, that we had more freedoms of choice and we were more protected by mm. rights. But on the other hand, that we were more exposed to arbitrary power. That could be in the form of nature that we suddenly cannot predict and that it doesn't, it doesn't act like the clockwork that they predicted in the mm. 17th century, but also that we have enormous concentrations of power like Facebook or like China or some of the global companies. So and on the one hand, we, we have more power as consumers and, and, and as you know, minorities struggling for, for their rights. But on the other hand, 
we feel alienated in, in this world or it's hard to find the levers of power for the citizens. Yeah, I, I think he's right. In a way, it's one of the themes of my book and that maybe the last decade has really brought it to the surface, but it's always there in modern politics. This idea that with the freedoms that we value, particularly the liberal individualistic freedoms, you know, the idea that we can just get on with our lives, uh, we can be one of the things that we want. One of the things that all modern citizens want is to be free from politics. You know, the promise is somehow we don't have to spend our time worrying about all of these questions of power and authority. We can get on with the fun stuff, making money, falling in love, whatever it is. This is the liberal dream. And it always goes along with its opposite. You know, the more that you think, I can lead a happy, fulfilled life without it being a political life, the more you run the risk that politics, which never goes away, we are political creatures, politics will be beyond your be beyond your power to control. And yeah, the last decade, maybe longer than that, I would say, we've seen this really starkly. And I think information technology is just the turbocharged version of it. I mean, if you think about what the digital revolution has done, it has massively empowered individuals to feel this this sense that they they can navigate the world according to their own wishes. You know, we can we can go online and we can find the news that suits us. We can you know, make the friends that we want. We can build communities that suit us. We're, we're freed. And at the same time, the same technology gives us all this sense that we're in the grip of forces that we can't control. And you know, that's at the heart of our politics now. And it's the dilemma of modern politics. It's not like I think in modern politics, there's a solution to this, you know, that there's a mechanistic version, a rational version that tells you how to resolve the desire for freedom and the risk that you lose control. That is modern politics. You know, that is our condition. But what we have now is the heightened version of it. Someone on the left would say that that we're that we're just exposed to market forces that we cannot control, and and in the beginning of uh, of of the pandemic, a lot of people on the left, including us here at this newspaper, were cheering for mm. the comeback of the state because we were thinking, mm. now this is the end of neoliberalism. We say that every five years. This is the end of neoliberalism. <laughs> you see big state intervention in the economy and Financial Times. Uh, wrote a couple of editorials saying, well, we have to be more tolerant of state intervention in, in in the economy. So we kind of automatically expect state action to be on behalf of of the workers and uh, of solidarity. But it now, one and a half years later, it seems that it wasn't that kind of state that was that was emerging. You see also in the UK Boris Johnson almost expanding the state and the, and and it seems that that the state that is emerging is a kind of state that that can keep society running but also that can increase the inequalities so we have the same sense that this is a force beyond the control of of uh, of our powers do do you recognize that picture yeah i do i think part of our problem here you know that sense that you said at the beginning that we don't really know where we are is that we do, it's inevitable, it's a human tendency. We try and frame this uh, with the ideas, the categories that we're familiar with. And I, I, for a while, I've had a feeling that when we worry about politics, we try and make it fit 20th century patterns and ideas, including anxieties about the failure of democracy, you know, the thought that democracy is going to fail like the 1930s, or the idea that we can reinvent or we can get back to the pre-neoliberal phase, the 50s and 60s, the 30 glorious years of the social democratic state. 
And I think the 21st century is a new world, um, not just because of technology, I think because of some of the, the global challenges, including climate and so on. It, it doesn't fit those 20th century categories. And so what we see is, is what you described, which is we think it's going to be one thing, and yet it's something else at the same time. It's not just going to be a reinvention of social democracy, a turning of the clock back. There is a nostalgia. I think a lot of people have a nostalgia for a, a politics where particularly these kinds of political institutions, if you think we're still working with the same political institutions, elections in, in the West, in the democratic West, elections, political parties, you know, professional civil service, public opinion surveys, all of that. Why can't we get our politics to work in that way? Well, those are, many of them, institutions that come from a different age. And you try and run politics through those institutions now, and it, it, some of it looks familiar. The state comes back and starts telling us what to do. But the, the scope of the state, its power, its ability to control some of these technological forces is just radically different. And I do think we need to, like you say, every five years we think this is the end of something we don't like. But it's not going to be going back to something we do like. It's, it's new. Um, and there's a newness to our politics, which is really unfamiliar, I think, for many of us. Um, but that's the challenge to open ourselves up to the idea. Maybe this, this is different. Something that is really gained in your book, I think, by rereading some of the classic, and it's a very interesting selection of, of, of classics, actually, that, 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 you've, that you've chosen. It makes sense, but in, in the beginning, I couldn't see the pattern, but it makes sense in, 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 in the end. But one of the advantages of that strategy of reading is that you get to see things that were thought of as opportunities at a certain time that we've now left, and then you kind of revisit What was it actually Marx and Engels were thinking? What was Hannah Arendt thinking? And something that really struck me is the ending of your chapter about Gandhi, because I never thought of Gandhi as the way forward. I, I thought today that Gandhi was maybe a bit scandalized because the Hindu nationalism is kind of a governing ideology of of Modi now. But 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 you say that Gandhi suggests the possibility of something both more individualistic and more collective. He indicates the possibility of a politics through which people might be truer to themselves. Uh, that is a, that is a very interesting reading. How do you see this potential in Gandhi? Yeah, I think so Gandhi is, is interesting to, for me, partly because, you know, he, he, he gets sort of picked up in the West as the thinker, you know, as well as the politician, of civil disobedience. That's his sort of calling card. And, and he still comes up a lot. So Extinction Rebellion and their protests that have been widespread in the UK, they they draw on Gandhi's writings for you know, the need to break the law when you feel a terrible injustice is being done and so on. And in many ways, I think that taking that from Gandhi doesn't really cut across the, the civil disobedience Gandhi, the Gandhi who was trying to get the British out of India. It's quite context specific. I mean, Gandhi knew what he wanted to achieve, and that kind of politics, I think, needs a very clear goal and target. The problem I have with Extinction Rebellion or Occupy Wall Street or whatever is you can't say what is the equivalent of getting the British out of India. What is the actual target for this? It's a generalized form of protest and outrage. I don't think it works. On the other hand, behind Gandhi, there is this profound critique of modern politics and the sense that the you know its mechanical nature machine politics representative government 
the idea that we get professional politicians to take decisions for us. It's all part of this conception of modern life, which goes along with technological innovation and increasing tendency of human beings to franchise out decisions to others, whether it's a machine, whether it's a politician, whether it's a phone. Uh, for Gandhi, it was you know, the railways and modern medicine. You know, for us, it's the idea that somehow our choices are being framed by technology that we can't control. And that a really integrated politics has to somehow find a connection between genuine individual choice and something that transcends it. And that dream seems to me to be absolutely always there in modern politics. You can't live a modern life, a life where you're looking for efficiency and economies of scale and you know, a market that works to match consumption with demand, all of the features of modern life, without feeling that some part of what it is that makes you an individual has been taken over by systems and machines and mechanisms that you don't control. And so when I read Gandhi, that speaks to me, and I, I write about it in the book. What I find so fascinating about Gandhi is more than 100 years ago, he feels really prophetic about the age of digital technology, which is odd because he had no idea about <laughs> digital technology, what it would mean. You know, he was literally thinking about early 20th century industrial technology. And yet that sense that what's coming in the name of convenience and in alliance with modern politics, that modern politics and ideas of mechanical convenience kind of feed off each other is something that in the end, in the name of our individuality, will destroy our individuality. I get that as an idea that does translate across, but it's a different Gandhi. It's not the Gandhi of, of Indian independence. It's not the Gandhi who feeds into contemporary Indian politics. It's a different Gandhi. Um, it's the Gandhi who studied in, in the West and tried to come up with a universal theory of politics. And I think that's an interesting point that you could say about both Franz Fanon and Gandhi that you both mention in your book, and I know in 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 very on very different premises that they are some of the most ardent critics of the West, and I think also some of the most efficient critics, actually, to the extent that they've 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 inspired a lot of of movements and they've inspired some 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 real change, and and their legacy is still in. in inspiring young people and, and, and protesters, you could say that Franz Fanon and Gandhi are examples of how you can use the ideas of the West against the power of the West. That that the yeah. West, so to speak, inspires its own opposition and its own contradiction. Yeah, they are. So Gandhi and Fanon, in their different ways, these are internal critiques of this version of politics. Fanon studied in France. He, he, he trained as a, a modern Western Uh, psychiatrist. He was a doctor, um, and he and he writes that you know, the ideas, in a sense, he writes the ideas that will save the world come out of Europe. Um, you know, European thought still dominates, but the Europeans no longer know what to do with them. That, that Europe, and you'd include the United States now in that, Europe is trapped with the legacy of these ideas, particularly the imperial legacy of these ideas. And what you have to do is, in a sense, emancipate the ideas from the Europeans. You have to free these ideas up to have their true potential, which is the hardest thing to do. You know, for all of us, I think that's part of what I try and do in the book. You trace the origins of institutions that we have come to take for granted. 
modern liberal democratic institutions. You see that they're contingent. You see they come from a particular time and place that people had particular, as you said, ambitions or hopes for them. But we've sort of naturalized them. We've just woven them into our lives so that we find it really hard to imagine the potential, the promise of these ideas, apart from just the routine of them and the way that we go about our business. I think it's incredibly difficult, particularly in relatively speaking, stable and successful societies like ours, to get back to the mindset where these ideas were really open and they had the potential to shape a whole range of different futures. For us now, these ideas are us. And as we feel them start to shake and wobble, you know, we get very anxious. There's a lot of anxiety, uh, particularly among young people, the students I teach. There's a real air of something isn't right here. But it's so hard for those of us who grew up with these ideas, having a particular institutional form to think beyond that institutional form. And so we spend our time still going round and round in circles, thinking that Biden will save democracy, thinking, you know, the next election, the next this, hoping these people will win, hoping that policy will get adopted. We don't recapture that sense that there's a bigger set of opportunities out there and a bigger set of risks too. Having now reread, uh, your book starts with Thomas Hobbes and it ends with uh, Francis Fukuyama. And and th- so this is like a, a canon of theories of the state and 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 political theories and when i look at this this canon and and i read through it i'm struck by the fact that nature doesn't seem to be very important to any of the thinkers that in this period that we could also call political modernity nature is taken for granted and it's also assumed that the threats to our freedom and the threats to our security it comes from either other humans as persons or communities or from market forces and and it seems that the beginning of this period is also the assumption that nature is a clockwork and that mechanical nature is something that we can predict and that we can control to what extent do you think that climate change poses a radical challenge to the premises of this entire canon that you've gone through so i think it does um So you start with Hobbes, and Hobbes is the philosopher who says, well, if we live according to nature as natural human beings, we can't flourish. And what we need is what he calls the artifice of politics, an artificial life, a version of life, which is made by us. And if we make it right, if we get it on the right principles, it will keep us safe. And then it will allow us to flourish and develop and so on and sort of take us not beyond nature, but in a way, keep us safe from nature and our natural impulses. So nature exists as the threat, but the idea is safety lies beyond nature. And therefore, presumably, nature is also something that can then be used. And that assumption runs through these thinkers. It's there in you know, Marx and Engels. What Marx and Engels like about capitalism is the way that it's tamed nature. They just wish different human beings were in charge of it, not the capitalists, but the workers. And you know, through to so Fukuyama's writing in the early 1990s, we were aware then of climate change, I suppose, but it certainly wasn't a, a prominent in most people's minds. And the idea is still that we're trying to work out how to get human beings to exercise the right kind of control over the things that would otherwise allow us to threaten each other. 
And I feel it every day. I'm sure many people feel it every day. You look at the way we lead our lives and how much of it is based on assumptions about how society works, how economies work, about what politics is. Politics is based on growth and, and uh, you know, treating citizens as consumers with rights and all the rest of it and meeting our needs and doing that thing that Hobbes hoped politics would do, which is allowing us to flourish and experiment. And it feels like we can't go on like this. It has, it's finite. Uh, it, it has a limit. But the thing that's so hard to try and understand is if it has a limit, does that mean this way of doing politics has a limit too and we need to get beyond it? And I don't think that these thinkers did really um, come to grips with the possibility that this way of doing politics is self-limited by its need to get beyond nature uh, and that nature might exact a kind of revenge. But that's where we are now. Um, I've written about this before and I felt for a long time that climate change possibly does pose a challenge to our assumptions about politics because it just does not fit our timeframes. It does not fit the way in which we organize decision-making in, in political terms. But the, you know, our politics won't spot that. Uh, you know, I've, I've sometimes thought, what would, what would 21st century politics look like if it was signaling to us that it couldn't cope with climate change? Hmm. You know, how would it signal that to us? It could look like this. Now, it might be signaling that to us now, but we can't read it. We're not familiar with what that looks like. Um, I don't think that suddenly this way of doing politics is going to start ringing alarm bells so that everybody hears them. This could be it, but we can't recognize it. And if that's true, then that way of doing politics from Hobbes to now, which you know, for many, many of the human beings who lived through that period did make them safer, securer, more prosperous, it may be at its limit. 350 years isn't bad for a, a way of organizing political and social life. Given it won't last forever, we have to be alive to the possibility that we are at the limit of it. Yeah, it certainly feels like that a lot of the times. I'd like to return to that, but first I'll ask you another question, which is, When you look at the last 30 years of intellectual life, and I was thinking of that when I read what you wrote about Fukuyama, it's, I think it's striking how little people who are very bright and who are very dominant intellectually have actually been concerned about climate change. And I'm not talking about denialism here, but more that our theories and our thinking and what we were brought up with and educated by taught us to look in a specific direction and look away from from nature when you think of the 90s where actually now looking back you know James Hansen came to Congress in the late 80s and you had the Rio summit in the beginning of the 90s where you actually knew basically everything that yet that you needed to know what to do and especially what not to do and George Herbert Walker Bush came back from Rio and said he would use the efficiency of the White House to combat the damage done by the greenhouse gases. So we knew at the time, but it's not like you saw a lot of people speaking about it. It wasn't the big topic of everyone who was interested in society or among political scientists. And I've been, and we were even talking about Generation X, that everything was done. The big problem was for us, that all big problems were solved and it was so boring. You know, I'm I was young in the, in the 90s. And looking back now, is that kind of a product of 
the theories that we were brought up by and what we were trained to think of intellectually as the real problems of societies. Yeah, I think so. I think the challenge, in a way, is because people often say this. They say, "Well, we know what to do you know, about climate." In a sense, it's a question of sort of finding the political will to do it. But in a way, it's not just politics; isn't just about finding the political will. The question is, when do you do it? You know, there are costs. There are always costs. Um, things can be put off. And even if in the 80s and 90s people had a sense that something would have to be done, the question is, is it up to us to do it? Do we do it now? Can we wait? And I think there is, in the background, this assumption that I was just touching on earlier, that somehow the system will signal to us. You know, we've built this version of politics, which is designed to let us know when things have to be done. Uh, you know, the, the public opinion or expert opinion or some version of opinion will generate the urgency that's needed and i've felt over the last 20 30 years that people have been looking for the signal you know, now is the time to hmm. act and it doesn't come because everyone's waiting for everyone else to signal it you know hmm. politicians are waiting for the public to signal it but the public don't vote for it the public are waiting for the politicians to let them know but the politicians can't decide and there's a sort of circular nature to this we're waiting to be told and it's not that kind of problem so it's not like uh, you know an economic crisis where finally things get sufficiently bad that you have to act. It's not like a war where the armies mass at the border and you realize everyone has to kind of pull together to save the nation or whatever it is. And so we've just been sort of waiting. Um, and the risk is that we wait too long. There will come a point where we recognize we do have to act. But of course, the danger is that it's too late. And if that's true, it means this is a problem that doesn't fit the patterns of modern politics and it, modern politics makes it too easy for us to think that we're being told to concentrate on this this is what people care about this is what the system can cope with and the challenge is always to imagine what if there's something that the system isn't telling us that we need to do but that we need to do and if that's the case with climate change i think we we are really in trouble because the system will not tell us any more than the market will the, the thought that Either the market will solve it, because when, when things have to be solved, markets come up with solutions, or politics will solve it, because when things reach a point they can't go on, the political system signals to us that that's the case. With this challenge, I think it's more than possible to imagine that neither of those two mechanisms will work. And that means we have to come up with an imaginative solution for ourselves outside of these mechanisms. There's another way of, of, of looking at it, which I often tell my children, because I think we should be hopeful when talking to our children. Yeah. And then we should spend the rest of the time trying to qualify that hopefulness. Uh, and which is, I, I say, well, actually, this Friday for Future Movement and Greta Thunberg, mm. it is in the tradition of the civil rights movement in America in, in the 60s. These are movements that, that demand from society that it lifts up to its own promises they're not you know they're not actually radical they're not actually mm. revolutionary they're just saying well you promised us paris you promised to stay as well below two degrees as possible but as opposed to other movements in the past these movements they kind of grow with the scope of the problem so you have kids from Sweden, which of course is inspiring here in Denmark, uh, who inspire kids in India and in America and in Latin America. So what was originally a national movement has become a global movement. And 
what used to be directed just against maybe the executive power in your own society is now being directed against all centers of power. So you have you have like BlackRock, the biggest capital manager in the world, and they're also influenced by they're also influenced by Fridays for Future. Maybe not directly, but but this movement is actually capable of holding holding even large corporations accountable and they know that they will be held accountable so actually we are in the process of reinventing executive power for a global level and 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 that the cops are like a, a global court where you see how far have we come they're not the places where you decide anything but they're the places where the failures are on display and i think you could say that looking at these global movements and the way that capital flows are also changing and the way that every society is trying in its own way to make a social contract between regards for workers and this green transition that we are actually progressing and that we are actually in the process of of reinventing our political tools with this problem So I agree with you that one shouldn't be despairing and uh, hope is important, but I don't think I agree with that um, analysis because, and I touched on this earlier in relation to Gandhi, the the comparison, say, with the civil rights movement in the United States, that kind of uh, morally charged protest politics. But the demand there was for political change, that, that uh, as it was with Gandhi, you know, give us Indians the ability to control our own lives, give us independence, give black Americans in the American South, give us our rights, give us the, the ability to vote, give us our freedom. We want, it's not, we want you to treat us better. The demand is not, we want you, the powerful people, to do the right thing. It's, we want you to give us the power. Mm-hmm. And that's what's missing from this. So that the, you know, the demand is, you know, we want you to do the right thing. We want you BlackRock to reimagine your responsibilities. We want you elected governments to do the right thing. That's not enough. The demand has to be, we want you to give us the power. I think children should be demanding more power. I think children should be demanding the right to vote. I think that these protest movements are only really effective when the protest is itself a demand for more political power. Because in the end, I think if you leave it up to people and say, we're going to keep telling you to behave better, it's not enough. I mean, it can make some difference and some change, but I think we've seen over the the past few years that on its own, it's not enough. What needs to change is the way we do politics, that the the people who currently exercise, as Quentin Skinner would say, these extraordinary pockets of unaccountable power need to be made more accountable and school strikes, raise the issues, but they are not holding people to account. Greta Thunberg standing outside COP and saying what's going on in there is blah, 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 is a critique, but it's not a form of holding them to account. We need radically different institutional arrangements if you want BlackRock and Boris Johnson and anyone else who has too much power to have that power exercised by others. Uh, So I think it needs to be more, in some ways, I think it needs to be more radical because what's missing is the possibility of radical political change. What we want is radical economic change, moral change, social change, environmental change, but it's still a political world. I think 
children should be demanding not that adults live up to their responsibilities, but that adults should give children more power. Hmm. But I, I think at least I would say that a young generation is learning about their political power. They're building movements and they're finding out that that they actually have a voice together and that could be the first steps toward that. Yeah, it, it could be. Um, and all of these things start you know, in one form and translate into something else. And I think, apart from anything else, probably in the next five, 10, 15 years, we are going to see new kinds of uh, political movements achieve power through democratic and other means. You know, I, I can't believe that in 20 years' time, it'll be the same kinds of politicians doing the same kind of politics. So those possibilities are there. But the thing that seems to be missing is you know, an imagined form of politics, a new form of politics, which has radically different institutions and different ways of you know, exercising democratic control and so on. Um, that doesn't seem to be at the heart of what's being demanded at the moment. What's being demanded at the moment is, as you put it, people living up to their promises. You can ask people to live up to their promises you know, until you're blue in the face, but <laughs> if you actually want them to live up to their promises, you have to have power over them. And we don't have that power at the moment. And it strikes another thing which is central to your book, namely, on the one hand, the obvious need for radical transformations of our societies, democracies, institutions, and economies, because we're, we're we're destroying the foundations for the next generation. But then on the other hand, also among the people that you would usually expect would be leading these changes, a great anxiety about change, a sense that everything mm-hmm. that changes is for the worst, that every time your institutions are made more fragile or are being threatened, that you'll see Donald Trump or that you'll see Modi or that you'll see Xi Jinping. Mm. So there is this, we need change, but there's also a very, very strong conservative tendency among progressives and liberals that I think was extreme under Donald Trump, where every American scholar, it seemed to me, was were writing essays about how to defend liberal democracy against mm. anyone who wanted to change this. So I think this is also part of the moment that we're in, the objective need for change and then the fear among the educated and the fear among the liberals and and, and their defense of, of what we used to call the establishment. Yeah, and I think that and I think it is distinctive to us. So the writers I write about in the book, in a sense, they're all thinking Uh, about the possibilities of politics with a sense that the future is pretty open and that there's quite a wide range of things that could go better and could go worse. And we are at the end of that. Um, so we're not the people who are thinking about all of this un- untried and untested possibility in our politics. I mean, Fukuyama is probably the closest to one of the writers who's at the end of it. And he's at the end of my book. You know, we are in many ways, we are the beneficiaries of it. But, um, A lot of this political imagination and thinking did create a remarkably transformed world, the modern world, which in so many ways is so much better than what went before, just measured by you know, human experience and the ability of human beings to control their lives and, and to lead prosperous and happy lives. Uh, and so we are we are having to sort of fire up our political imaginations under circumstances in which we I think we know how lucky we are or how lucky we've been. Particularly, I think people have our generation and maybe our parents' generation. You know, sort of from 
let's say in Western Europe from the end of the Second World War through to now, there is a sense that there is a lot to lose, but we're not so clear there's a huge amount to gain. And yet these problems are building up. And that does make us different. That makes the political challenge for us different. We can't be like Hobbes and sit there and think politics is so terrible, you know, almost anything would be better than this. We've almost got ourselves into the reverse mindset where we sort of think, well, almost any any change risks being worse than what we've had and what we're used to. And that's dangerous because if you, if you keep spinning the wheels in the hope of just keeping it going while these problems build, at some point the system will will break. But it, it's much more challenging for us. And I've written about this in, in other books too, that you know, we, we are late to this story. Uh, we're the sort of late middle-aged version of this story. We're the ones who've lived much of our life, our political life, under conditions that have worked for us. And change is much harder in those circumstances than when you're young, which is one of the reasons why I think we should not just listen to the young, but empower the young. Um, if you're young, you have much more of a sense of possibility. But our political institutions and our way of doing politics feels older and tired. And that's dangerous for sure. Well, I have one last question for you, for you, uh, David, which is that when we're talking about politics, I think we often, at least I can say from my point of view, what we do here in this newspaper, we always think that we circulate ideas and we try to take the best ideas from the social movement and confront those in power with them. And we try to take the arguments of those in power and confront those in the social movements with them. So we see us as part of a... We see us as part of an emancipation movement and a part of an enlightening a, a, a public sphere. So we really believe that enlightenment and discussion, deliberation is part of a greater transformation of our democracy. But then sometimes I also feel that we're just chess players sitting beside the wall, that what is actually taking place is a lot more advanced that it's a lot more complicated and that those who come up with the solutions, they're usually practical people and we're always late to to find out. So have this sense that our illusion, as Bourdieu would say, is that is that we're part of the big transformation in our society, but our realism is that we're just chess players, players entertaining ourselves with our rationality. How do you see what you yourself is doing with your books, your teaching and 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 your podcast in that regard? That's a big question. I mean, <laughs> I um, so, so part of, uh, I suppose, what I'm doing with a book like this, writing about the history of ideas and trying to talk about the history of ideas is just to try and give that sense that um, there's more possibility in how we think about politics than maybe we're used to because we, you know, we see the world as all human beings do. We see the world through our familiar frames and taking ideas that we use and seeing where they come from can just sometimes help sort of jolt you and give you a sense that there's more to this than that. Um, that The game that we play is not the only game. Uh, We maybe take for granted the rules and we haven't thought hard enough about whether these rules work for us. But then in the background of that, there is this deeper possibility, which I think you're getting at, which is this, this modern idea, an idea which doesn't just start with Hobbes, but Hobbes exemplifies it, that smart, rational human beings can get control of this. We can get a grip of this thing, which is, as Arendt would call, the human condition, and we can make it sufficiently regular and familiar that we can manage it. 
And the way to do that is through politics. So one possibility is that we are now entering a phase where if we want to do that, if we want to regulate it and manage it and control it, it won't anymore be through politics. Um, this is going to be done through technology. It's going to be done by people who don't primarily think of themselves as engaged in politics and political ideas and contestation and argument or even democracy. It's going to be done by people who feel that they understand a kind of rhythm of mechanical life that doesn't need politics. And we may be on the cusp of that. So this, this period of, of modern life, which has gone along with an idea that a well-set-up, well-established modern state can allow us to control our lived experience, that those two things are coming apart. The idea of controlling our lived experience and the world of politics are increasingly separate. And so there is a risk, as you described it, that we carry on doing politics, thinking that this is control, but it's not anymore. And actually, that form of control, particularly mechanical control, which is where the modern idea of politics starts, that's been taken on by others um, and is being done in different ways. I don't think we're there yet. I don't think these two things have come apart. I still think politics got a lot of life left in it. I still think there are crises to come where we will fall back on the thought that these political ideas are what we need to understand and organize our collective lives. But it is a genuine 21st century risk that the people with the control feel that politics is a kind of secondary exercise or even a luxury that we don't need anymore. And if that's true, then what people like you and I do is increasingly irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant yet. But in a sense, what I'm trying to say is that if we want it not to be irrelevant, we have to think beyond the categories that we're familiar with. We have to think that this thing that we call politics has got to broaden its imagination to include these possibilities of a, of a different way of experiencing the world. If we just carry on doing 1990s politics through to the year 2050, by the year 2050, politics will be irrelevant. And I think I can speak for a lot of people here and say, David, what you do and the way that you circulate ideas and discuss ideas and curiously keep on trying to find out what's actually going on as well is inspiring a lot of of people here and and it's very inspiring to us here at this newspaper and I'm I am sure that in the end that that circulating ideas and giving people arguments and concepts and opening other doors in history is absolutely helping those who are going to change society the way that we need it in the end so thank you very much for the conversation David thank you it's been my pleasure thanks det var så min samtale med David Runciman. Langsom samtaler går herfra på juleferie. Når vi vender tilbage i det nye år 2022, så taler jeg med den amerikanske politiske tænker og politiske aktivist Ibram X. Kendi. Han har skrevet en bog, der hedder How to be an anti-racist, som er en formidabel, tankevækkende og udfordrende bog. Den revolutionerer i hvert fald mit begreb om, hvad det vil sige at være racist og hvordan man bekæmper racisme. Så hvis du vil høre på det, og hvis du vil være med i den kamp, så skal du bare vente til 2022. Så starter vi med en langsom samtale med Ibram X. Kendi, og så lover jeg, at derfra vil det bare gå fremad. Men vi er ikke færdige. Fordi hvis man absolut vil have nogle store samtaler om verdens indretning, så har vi lavet en radioinformationsspecial, hvor vi taler med en af podcastens bedste venner, nemlig min gamle chef og vejleder Bo Lidegaard. 
og vi tager den store samtale om alt det, der er sket i 2021. Hvordan vi skal forstå det, hvorfor vi ikke skal give op, og hvorfor der stadigvæk er grund til håb. Vi kommer hele verden rundt, også ud i verdensrummet. Vi tager klimaet, vi tager USA, vi tager Asien, vi tager stormagtspolitik, og vi tager helt sikkert den nye tyske regering, som Bo er meget optaget af. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.